Okay, and we're live. Robin, you ready to start us off? Sure. We're on page 136, section 88. And Aurora, can, can you start? Yes, I can. So far, the factors abandoned by the jhana have been shown. And now, in order to show the factors associated with it, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought, is said, Herein, applied thinking, vitakana, is applied thought, vitaka. Hitting upon is what is meant. It has the characteristic of directing the mind onto an object, mounting the mind on its object. Its function is to strike at and thresh, for the meditator is said, in virtue of it, to have the object struck at by applied thought, threshed by applied thought. It is manifested as the leading of mind onto an object. Sustained thinking, vicharana, is sustained through vichara. Continued sustainment is what is meant. It has the characteristic of continued pressure on occupation with the object. Its function is to keep connascent mental states occupied with that. It is manifested as keeping consciousness anchored on that object. Thank you. David, can you read 89? David, I don't think we can hear you. You may have to um, just work with your microphone in the... Okay. If, if, you, um, if you get your mic going later on, just let us know. Um, David Bonari, can you read 89? And though sometimes not separate, applied thought is the first impact of the mind in the sense that it is both gross, gross and inceptive, like the striking of a bell. Sustained thought is the act of keeping the mind anchored in the sense that it is subtle with the individual essence of continued pressure, like the ringing of the bell. Applied thought intervenes, being the interference of consciousness at the time of first arousing thought like a bird spreading out its wings when it when it when about to soar into the air and like a beast diving towards a lotus when it is minded to follow up the scent of it the behavior of sustained thought is quiet being the near non-interference of consciousness like the birds planning with outspread wings after soaring into the air and like the bees buzzing above the lotus after it has dived towards it. In the, <clears throat> excuse me. In the commentary to the Book of Twos, this is said, applied thought occurs as a state of direct, directing the mind onto an object, like the movement of a large bird taking off into the air by engaging the air with both wings and forcing them downwards for it causes absorption by being unified. Sustained thought occurs with the individual essence of continued pressure, like the bird's movement when it is using, activating its wings for the purpose of keeping hold on the air, for it keeps pressing the object. That fits in with the latter's occurrence as anchoring. This difference of theirs becomes evident in the first and second jhanas in the fivefold reckoning. Furthermore, applied thought is like the hand that grips firmly, and sustained thought is like the hand that rubs. When one grips a tarnished metal dish firmly with one hand, 
and rubs it with powder and oil, and a woolen pad with the other hand. Likewise, when a potter has spun his wheel with a stroke on the stick and is making a dish, his supporting hand is like applied thought, and his hand that moves back and forth is like sustained thought. Likewise, when one is drawing a circle, the pin that stays fixed down in the center is like applied thought, which directs onto the object, and the pin which revolves round, it is like sustained thought, which continuously presses. So this jhana occurs together with his, uh, this applied thought and this sustained It is called accompanied by applied sustained thought. As a tree is accompanied by flowers and fruits. But in the bang, the thing is given in terms of person or person. In the way beginning, he is possessed fully possessed of this applied thought and this sustained thought. This meaning should be regarded in the same way they are too. Born of seclusion. Here secludedness is seclusion. The meaning is disappearance of hindrances. Or alternatively, it is secluded, thus it is seclusion. The meaning is the collection of states associated with the jhana is secluded from hindrances. Born of seclusion is born of or in that kind of or in that kind of seclusion happiness and bliss it refreshes thus it is happiness it has the characteristic of endearing its function is to refresh the body and the mind or its function is to pervade thrill with rapture it is manifested as elation but it is of five kinds as minor happiness, momentary happiness, showering happiness, uplifting happiness, and pervading rapturous happiness. Herein, minor happiness is only able to raise the hairs on the body. Momentary happiness is like flashes of lighting at different moments. Showering happiness breaks over the body again and again like waves on the seashore. This is a very unfortunate translation. I'm... I'm... I'm quite surprised that he chose happiness as the translation of piti, because unless I'm wildly off base, that's not at all what piti is. Piti is not happiness. Piti is, as it says, pinna. We've talked about this before. I mentioned it earlier, but it throws me off every time because, of course, we have a much. The, the word he's using for bliss here is actually happiness. Sukha, bliss. His translation. Bliss is a translation of the word sukha, which should be happiness. Piti is excitement or zest. Zest is maybe the best one because it refreshes. It's a sense of... And if you look at these five kinds of piti, it's quite clear that none of them are happiness, right? Minor happiness is raising the hairs on the body. That's not happiness that does it. It's excitement or zest or, or static charge. It's this rapture is the most common translation. Although I think zest probably works as well. Maybe rapture is the best. Uh, piti is sort of this this trance, the trance aspect of getting uh, hypnotized by the object, the sense of being enraptured by the object. We actually say that. So rapture is a very good translation. Piti is anything that's kind of repetitive and, and born of concentration in the sense of um, occurring... Uh, repeatedly, sort of involuntarily, 
kind of as a broken record again and again. Anything that happens like that can be thought of as piti. So when you're sitting and you start shaking back and forth, like it's almost happening by itself. Or when you have these waves of energy that, that cause your hair to raise, or uh, where you start to feel a build-up of energy inside, or you start to feel really light, and so on. So he's going to go through them here, but please keep in mind the word happiness. That's a quite clear that's not the proper word he should be using, so it's quite confusing otherwise, I think. Thank you. David Benary, can you read 95? Uplifting happiness can be powerful enough to levitate the body and make it spring up into the air. For this was what happened to the elder Mahatisa, resident of Puna Valika. He went to the shrine terrace on the evening of the full moon day. Seeing the moonlight, he faced in the direction of the great shrine at Anura Bapura, thinking at this very hour the forest. Assemblies are worshipping at the great shrine. By means of objects formerly seen there, he aroused uplifting happiness with the enlightened one as object. And he rose into the air like a painted ball, bounced off a plastered floor, and alighted on the terrace of the great shrine. And this was what happened to the daughter of a clan in the village of Watakalaka near Girikandaka Monastery, where she sprang up into the air owing to strong, uplifting happiness with the Enlightened One as object. As her parents were about to go to the monastery in the evening, it seems, in order to hear the Dhamma, they told her, My dear, you are expecting a child. You cannot go out at, a suitable, at an unsuitable time. We shall hear the Tama and gain merit for you. So they went out, and though she wanted to go too, she could not well object to what they had said. She stepped out of the house onto the balcony and stood looking at the Akasa Chaitya shrine at Girikandaka, lit by the moon. She saw the offering of lamps at the shrine and the four communities as they circumambulated it to the right after making their offerings of flowers and perfumes. And she heard the sound of the mass recital by the community of bhikkhus. Then she thought how lucky they are to be able to go to the monastery and wander around such a shrine terrace and listen to such a sweet preaching of the Tamma. Seeing the shrine as a mound of pearls and arousing uplifting happiness, she sprang up into the air, and before her parents arrived, she came down from the air to the shrine terrace, where she paid homage and stood listening to the Tamma. Yeah, so if you ever have one of these experiences where you suddenly fly through the air and are transported over uh, large measures of uh, space... Now you know the cause. <laughs> I don't don't suppose it happens all that often, but there was apparently a novice in Bangkok who this happened to. He was so excited to be going home uh, to see his his mother. This was would have been fifty, at least fifty years ago. Apparently, it happened. They talk about it, and he was so excited that he sat. He couldn't control his his excitement to go home to see his mother, and so he sat down to meditate, trying to to sort of calm himself down. And by the time when it was time to go, someone came to find him, 
and they found him way up sitting in the hands of this giant Buddha statue um, where he had somehow been uh, lifted into the Buddha's hands. Apparently that happened. That is pretty awesome. The elder Mahatisa, was that the one that, that you were talking about in the Dhammapada video you did this week? I don't think so. I think these are all Sri Lankan stories. Ah, okay. Yeah, this is uh, Anuradhapura, so it's talking about Sri Lanka. A lot of the stories, a lot of the stories here are are way after the commentaries. They are, or or after the Dhammapada commentaries. They're after the Buddha's time. They're stories of monks, you know, hundreds of years after the Buddha passed away, even. Ah, okay. Thank you. When her parents arrived, they asked her, what road did you come by? She said, I came through the air, not by the road. And when they told her, my dear, those whose cankers are destroyed come through the air, but how did you come? She replied, as I was standing there looking at the shrine in the moonlight, a strong sense of happiness arose in me with the enlightened one as its object. Then I knew no more whether I was standing or sitting, but only that I was springing up into the air with the sign that I had grasped and I came to rest on this shrine terrace. So uplifting happiness can be powerful enough to levitate the body and make it spring up into the air. But when pervading rapturous happiness arises, the whole body is completely pervaded, like a filled bladder, like a rock uh, cavern invaded by a huge uh, inun Thank you, Bhante. Can you read my yeah. Now, this fivefold rapture, when conceived and matured, perfects the twofold tranquility, that is, bodily and mental tranquility. When tranquility is conceived and matured, it perfects the twofold happiness, that is, bodily and mental happiness. When happiness is conceived and matured, it perfects the threefold concentration, that is, momentary concentration, access concentration, and absorption concentration. Of these, what is intended in this context by rapture is pervading rapture, which is the root of absorption and comes to growth in comes by growth into association with absorption. What does that mean? Comes by growth into association. It's a bit awkward, isn't it? It is. I think it means as it grows, it comes closer to absorption. Beats me. But as to the other word, pleasing is bliss, or alternatively, is thoroughly devours, consumes bodily and mental affliction, thus it is bliss. It is gratifying as its characteristic. Its function is to intensify associated states. It is manifested as aid. And wherever the two are associated, happiness is the contentedness at getting a desirable object, and bliss is the actual experiencing of it when God. When there is happiness, there is bliss. But where there is bliss, there is not necessarily happiness. 
Happiness is included in the formations aggregate. Bliss is included in the feeling aggregate. If a man exhausted in a desert saw or heard about a pond on the edge of a wood, he would have happiness. If he went into the wood's shade and used the water, he would have bliss. And it should be understood that this is said because they are obvious on such occasions. Yeah, I think that makes it fairly clear that he's got a problem with his translations, I, I think, anyway. I mean, it's a little bit hard to pinpoint, but happy, the, the word piti would be excitement. So you don't feel happy when you get something, you're excited. And there's a certain uplifting sense. But the actual experience is the happiness. And it, it's not possible to have bliss without happiness, right? I mean, it's, in English, these, this doesn't work. You can't say, as he says here, um, where there is bliss, there is not necessarily happiness. It's not possible. But those words, you know, happiness, bliss is a type of happiness. It's intense happiness. That's all it means. So these words are not proper. I think it's quite confusing unless you... Um, unless you are clear on that, so the and and that happiness, the, the word he's using, happiness here, isn't a feeling. So if it isn't a feeling, how can it be happiness, right? It's a formation. It's a state of mind that has this sort of rapture, excitement, however you want to translate it. Even in his example, you know, being in the desert and hearing about a, a pond, excitement does sound more appropriate in that case. Yeah, I mean, you could be happy, but it's not what is meant here. Uh, Bhante, I have heard a different uh, uh, meaning to it. Uh, for Sukha, it's like uh, when a patient, if you have uh, some itchy wound or some cancer gets suddenly cured, you feel what you feel is Sukha, is what I heard. And happiness is the or something it just doesn't work i mean in english happiness is a feeling there's happiness and there's unhappiness there's no you know pity doesn't enter into it it's not what pity means look at the five kinds of pity none of them have anything to do directly with happiness they can be caused by happiness but they aren't happiness it isn't happiness to levit to feel light you know feeling light is pity uh rocking back and forth feeling these waves it's not happiness. It's not what the happy word happiness means. It's it can't be the right translation. You know, goose flesh, okay. having having goosebumps. That's not happiness. It's I mean it's associated. Their two are very close. As you can see, they come together quite often. But eventually, one does away with excitement. Uh, how can one? How can one? Have have bliss without the happiness, but one has bliss or happiness without excitement. It's just more correct. I don't know. I mean, I've heard others say that that they buy this this translation as happiness. I can't. I, it's just quite jarring to me. And as far as I know, in modern times, that's not at all how we interpret these terms. Bhikkhu Bodhi, for example, read his translation. Pretty sure he uses rapture, and he'll use happiness for sukha. It's interesting. I'd like to maybe I'll take it up with our poly study group to to see what they have to say. If there's any anything they can use or any thoughts they have on 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 Nyanamoli's interesting usage, he has some. Bhante doesn't. 
doesn't suit like more comfortable feeling comfortable like when you get cured from under six I understand people have said because sukha means like going or or like a moving part an axle an axle uh, the wheel goes and if it goes comfortable if it's well greased it will go smoothly that's sukha ka it means to go so dukha means uh going roughly so it, they they say for that reason sukha doesn't really mean happiness but it's a silly argument sukha definitely means happiness it's the very base I don't know what what other word you could use bliss is far too uh, specific and intense because sukha is just the opposite of dukkha there the, there there are only three types of vedana so if the three types of vedana are not unhappiness happiness and 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 equanimity what else could they be you know sukha is the positive happiness it's the only good translation dukkha is unhappiness or however you want to say it suffering I'd say unhappiness is probably the best literal translation and uh, and equanimity which is uh, upeka there's only three I can't think of any more basic word that you would use for that positive feeling than happiness but clearly piti I'm pretty clear that piti is not happiness Anyway, it's all a bit technical but um it I think it makes it confusing as I said if you read this and I'm confused when I read that. I was confused when I read it the first time and wondered where is he getting this happiness this stuff. Yeah, thank you for the explanation. The pleasure would be of sukha, I hope. I hope you're not saying that piti is translated as pleasure. Right. Yeah, piti you could I I would I would agree with bliss being piti being translated as bliss. I don't like it, but I would go for it because bliss implies the excitement that is associated with piti. So you have sukha plus piti brings bliss. So a, a a more refined jhana you get rid of the bliss and you're just in a sort of a more subtle state of happiness that would be i'd buy that interpretation it's not the interpretation i'd use and i still don't like piti being translated as bliss but i'll go i'll go for that if you want to if someone wants to say that it just doesn't seem justified by the text i can see how you could fall into that but it's it's a stretch i'm surprised that he fell into that Yeah, it definitely doesn't seem like comfortable happiness. It's more like exciting happiness. I guess my problem is it's not a feeling, so how could it be happiness, you know? I mean, there are ways in which happiness can sukha can be understood as not a feeling. You know, nibbana is a sukha without feeling, so that's possible, but I think that's an exception. Otherwise, I think sukha is a or happiness is a feeling. Rapture is um it's a neutral state i mean it's wholesome but it's not um it's not it's not a sense of that this is a good thing it's a it's an absorbed thing it's a trance type thing well interest works but why why well pleasurable i don't 
I don't think see how that's important to say pleasurable because pleasurable is a value judgment right coming to water in the desert yeah yeah you see I mean to me interest is enough especially to distinguish it from sukha because it is distinct from sukha So, David, if you got your microphone, um, did you want to try 101 there? Can you hear me now? Yes. Great. Accordingly, A, this rapture and this bliss are of this jhana, or in this jhana. So, in this way, this jhana is qualified by the, by the words with rapture and bliss, and also born of seclusion. Or alternatively, B, the words rapture and bliss, piti sukang, can be taken as the happiness and the bliss independently, like the Dhamma and the discipline, Dhamma Vinaya. And so then it can be taken as seclusion-born happiness and bliss of this jhana, or in this jhana. So in this way it is the happiness and bliss, rather than the jhana, that are born of seclusion. For just as the words born of seclusion can be taken as qualifying the word jhana, so too can they be taken here as qualifying the expression happiness and bliss. And then that total expression is predicated of this jhana. So it is also correct to call happiness and bliss born of seclusion a single expression. In the Vibhanga, it is stated in the way beginning, this bliss accompanied by this happiness. The meaning should be regarded in the same way there too. First jhana, this will be explained below. Enters upon Upasampaja, arrives at reaches, is what is meant, or else taking it as makes enter. Upasampadayitva, then producing, is what is meant. In the Vibhanga, this is said, enters upon. The gaining, the regaining, the reaching, the arrival at, the touching, the realizing of, the entering upon, Upasampada, the first jhana, the meaning of which should be regarded in the same way. In the Dwalzen, Viharati, or Viharati, by becoming possessed of jhana and of the kind described above through dwelling in a posture favorable to that jhana. It produces a posture, a procedure, a keeping, an enduring, a lasting, a behavior, a dwelling of the person. For this is said in the Hribanga, dwells in, poses, proceeds, keeps, endures, lasts, behaves, dwells, hence dwells is said. And just um, a note if anyone's getting lost and not sure what the heck is going on. Um, we have a passage here that's quite stock, something the Buddha said again and again about jhana. And what we're doing here is a, it's, a, it's a bit unfamiliar for uh, you know, pe people unfamiliar with these texts. Um, to, they pick it apart word by word, and that's what he's doing. He's, he's explaining what each word of this phrase means. So 
if you really want the phrase, you can go back to the beginning and read exactly what was said. But he's just talk, ex describing, the Buddha describes what it means to enter the jhana, and now we're picking it apart. And we've got these words, this one word after another, and it's ways of trying to derive a word or trying to explain a word by means of synonyms. So sometimes the, you have a term and you want to know exactly what that term means, so he gives other synonyms in Pali and often similar words with similar roots to get a sense of, of comparison. Uh, it, it's amazing really that, that Nyanamoli was able to uh, come up with English uh, equivalences. So, so often uh, he's got the same sorts of lists, right? Which is hard to do. That's why a lot of the commentaries aren't translated because they do this and it's very tiresome, cumbersome to have to translate each. You know, you'll have same word but with a different prefix and then you have to find uh, a word in English that, that means the same thing. You'll see him getting a little bit overwhelmed himself at times. He'll, in the footnotes, he'll he'll uh, say that, you know, this is just, all these words basically mean the same thing, they're just different prefixes or something like that. Thank you. Now it is also said above, which, ab which abandons five factors, possesses five factors, Herein, the abandoning of the five factors should be understood as the abandoning of these five hindrances, namely lust, ill will, stiffness, and torpor, agitation and worry, and uncertainty. For no jhana arises until these have been abandoned, and so they are called the factors of abandoning. For although other unprofitable things too are abandoned at the moment of jhana, still only these are specifically obstructive to jhana. The mind affected through lust by greed for varied objective fields does not become concentrated on an object consistent unit or being overwhelmed by lust. It does not enter on the way abandoning the sense desire element. Entered by ill will towards an object, it does not occur uninterruptedly. When overcome by stiffness and torpor, it is unwilled. When seized by agitation and worry, it is uh, unquiet and uh, buzzes about. When taken by uncertainty, it fails to amount to accomplish the attainment of jhana. So it is these only that are called factors of abandoning because they are specifically obstructive to jhana. Sanka, you're cutting out. It sounds like your bandwidth isn't high enough. Uh, there are some settings, one setting that you can tweak, I think, to lower your mumbles bandwidth. Maybe that would help because you're breaking up when you talk. At least at my end, you are. Okay, I'll try that one. 106, right? But applied thought directs the mind onto the object. Sustained thought keeps it anchored there. Rapture, produced by the success of the effort, refreshes the mind whose effort has succeeded through not being distracted by those hindrances, and happiness intensifies it for the same reason. Then unification, aided by this directing onto, this anchoring, 
this refreshing and this intensifying, evenly and rightly centers the mind with its remaining associated states on the object consisting in unity. Consequently, possession of five factors should be understood as the arising of these five, namely applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and unification of mind. These are the five jhana factors, uh, the first jhana. And the higher jhanas, as we've said before, just remove uh, factors one by one. For it is when there are arisen that jhana is said to be arisen, which is why they are called the five factors of possession. Therefore, it should not be assumed that the jhana is something other which possesses them. But just as the army with the four factors and music with the five factors and the path with the eight factors, each full path, are stated simply in terms of the factors, so this too should be understood as stated simply in terms of its factors when it is said to have five factors or possess five factors. And while these five factors are present also at the moment of access and are stronger in access than in normal consciousness, they are still stronger here than in access and acquire the characteristic of the fine material sphere. For applied thought arises here directing the mind onto the object in an extremely lucid manner, and sustained thought does so pressing the object very hard, and the happiness and bliss pervade the entire body. Hence it is said, and there is nothing of his whole body not permeated by the happiness and bliss born of seclusion. And unification too arises in the complete contact with the object that the surface of a boxer's lid has with the surface of its base. This is how they differ from the others. Although unification of mind is not actually listed among these factors, in the summary, version, beginning, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought, nevertheless, it is mentioned later in the Vibhanga as follows. Jhana, it is applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, unification. And so it is a factor too, for the intention with which the Blessed One gave the summary is the same as that which he gave the exposition to follows, that follows it. Is good in three ways possesses ten characteristics. The goodness in three ways is in the beginning, middle, and end. The possession of the ten characteristics should be understood as the characteristics of the beginning, middle, and end too. Here is the text. Of the first jhana, purification of the way is the beginning, intensification of equanimity is the middle, and satisfaction is the end. Of the first jhana, purification of the way is the beginning. How many characteristics has the beginning? The beginning has three characteristics. The mind is purified of obstructions to that jhana because it is, because it is purified. The mind makes way for the central state of equilibrium which is the sign of serenity because it has made way because it has made way the mind enters into that state and it is since the mind becomes purified of obstructions and through being purified makes way for the central state of equi equilibrium which is the sign of serenity and having made way enters into that state that the purification of the way is the beginning of the first jhana 
These are the three characteristics in the beginning. Hence it is said, the first jhana is good in the beginning, which possesses three characteristics. Of the first jhana intensification of it is the middle. How many characteristics has the middle? The middle has three characteristics. He now looks on with equanimity at, at the mind that is purified. He looks on with equanimity at, at, at it as having made way for serenity. He, he looks on with equanimity at the sense of unity. And in that he now looks on with equanimity at the that is purified and looks on with equanimity at, at it as having made way for serenity and and looks on with equanimity at the appearance of unity. That, intensi that intensification of equanimity is the middle of first jhana. There are the three characteristics of the middle. So these are the three characteristics of the middle. Hence it is said, the first jhana is good in the middle which possesses three characteristics. Uh, did I break up on that? Very little bit. A little bit, but it was it was listenable. Okay. Of the first jhana, satisfaction is the end. How many characteristics has the end? The end has four characteristics. The satisfaction in the sense that there was non-excess of any of the states arisen therein, and the satisfaction in the sense that the faculties had a single function, and the satisfaction in the sense that the appropriate energy was effective, and the satisfaction in the sense of repetition, are the satisfaction in the end of the first jhana. These are the four characteristics of the end. Hence it is said, the first jhana is good in the end, which possesses four characteristics. Herein, purification of the way is accessed together with its concomitants. Intensification of equanimity is absorption. Satisfaction is reviewing. So some comment. But it is said in the text, the mind arrives at the unity, enters into purification of the way, is intensified in equanimity, and is satisfied by knowledge. And therefore it is from the standpoint with an actual absorption that purification of the way firstly should be understood as the approach, with the intensification of equanimity as the function of equanimity, consisting in specific neutrality, and satisfaction as manifestation of clarifying knowledge's function in accomplishing non-excess of states. How? Firstly, in a cycle of consciousness in which absorption arises, the mind becomes purified from the group of defilements called hindrances that are an obstruction to jhana. Being devoid of obstruction because it has been purified, it makes way for the central state of equilibrium, which is the sign of serenity. Now it is the absorption concentration itself occurring evenly that is called the sign of serenity. But the consciousness immediately before that reaches that state by way of change in a single continuity. And so it is said that it makes way for the central state of equilibrium, which is the sign of serenity. And it is said that it enters into that state by approaching it through having made way for it. 
That is why, in the first place, purification of the way, while referring to aspects existing in the preceding consciousness, should nevertheless be understood as the approach at the moment of the first jhana's actual arising. Secondly, when he has more interest in purifying, there is, since there is no need to repurify, which has already been purified thus, it is said that he looks on with equanimity at the mind that is purified. And when he has no more interest in concentrating again what has already made way for serenity by arriving at the state of serenity, it is said that he looks on with equanimity at it as having made way for serenity. And when he has no more interest in again causing appearance of unity in what has already appeared as unity through abandonment of its association with defilement in making way for serenity, it is said that he looks on with equanimity at the appearance of unity. That is why intensification of equanimity should be understood as the function of equanimity that consists in specific neutrality. And lastly, when equanimity was thus intensified, the states called concentration and understanding produced there, occurring coupled together without either one exceeding the other. And also the five faculties beginning with faith occurred with the single function, taste of deliverance, owing to deliverance from the various defilements, and also the energy appropriate to that which was favorable to their state of non-excess in single function was effective, and also its repetition occurs at that moment. Now all of these four aspects are only produced because it is after seeing with knowledge the various dangers and defilements and defilement and advantages in cleansing that satisfiedness, purifiedness and clarifiedness ensues accordingly. That is the reason why it was said that satisfaction should be understood as a manifestation of clarifying knowledge's function in accomplishing non-excess, etc. of states. Herein, satisfaction as a function of knowledge is called the end, since the knowledge is evident as due to onlooking equanimity. According, as it is said, he looks on with complete equanimity at the mind thus exerted. Then the outstanding faculty is outstanding, as understanding due to equanimity. Owing to equanimity, the mind is liberated from the many sorts of defilements. Then the understanding faculty is outstanding as understanding due to liberation. Because of being liberated, these states come to have a single function. Then the understanding faculty is outstanding as understanding due to development in the sense of the single function. It's getting a little hard to follow. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. I when think it means the, the understanding is... Um, is at the four? Yeah. Or it, it, understanding has a specific type. You know, that's it's it's a specific. He's talking about understanding being specifically understanding due to liberation. So it's not just any understanding. It's outstanding. I'm not sure quite. I don't know what word he's using. He's translating outstanding from. Even liberated, usually it seems like that word is associated with Nibbana, but they're just talking about jhana here, right? 
Well, the the point ajana, the definition is that it is temporary, temporarily free from jhana, uh, from defilement. So it's yeah. Ah, okay. Liberated is maybe a little bit too, too strong, but free from them. You know, what we're talking about now is called Jitta Visuddhi, so it's purification of the mind. This whole section is the actual purification of the mind. And it sounds like, when you say that, it sounds like you're saying, wow, that's, you know, got to be enlightenment, but it's not. The mind can be pure, and you can still give rise to defilement in the future. The purification of the mind here is just mind states. So they use that kind of language about the mind being pure and the mind being free, freed, you know, liberated. They use this, but it's it's a little bit strong. Just a little temporary nibbana there. Yeah, you could say that. I'd like to. Probably subdued, right, Bhante? Sorry. Subdued would be a better word, right, Bhante? Yeah. What's the other one? Um, secluded. From the use, right? We wake up, we wake, we wake, we wake, we wake, we wake, we wake, is secluded or suppressed. Subdued works. So I'd like to stop there. I'm, uh, you know, this whole section, I, it's, it's, not so interesting to me personally because it's not uh, regarding uh, our tradition we kind of skip a lot of this <laughs> but uh, it, it's generally interesting because it's giving us an overview of different types of meditation of more general meditation and, and very useful meditation there's certainly nothing it's not to, to disregard the power of any of this the usefulness of it you have the time and the energy and the inclination this is all good it'll get more interesting i think once you see the purpose of all this how it it leads to you know states of of profound and calm and absorption and then magical powers and rebirth and brahma realms and that kind of stuff so and it'll be interesting we'll go through all the many many different casinas so this again this first chapter is is thick because it's um it's it's the example so the other 39 objects are going to be much quicker than this for the most part you know some of them have their own details that they have to get into but they should be a lot less um difficult i think this this section was one of the more difficult ones because it's he's this is where he's going to define and try to answer a lot of esoteric problems that come up in regards to scholarly understanding of jhana. Okay, so we'll stop there and take a break and come back for Pali in maybe five minutes or ten minutes. <laughs>